Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Appreciate that. I know a lot of people are anxious to hear about the election in Israel and a whole bunch of other stuff. I'll start with this. I hope you don't mind. And I and I always respect the fact that you uh, concentrate more on the international than the local issues. But uh, I think people are anxious just to hear a statement from from Jewish leadership, frankly, and that is that uh, noticeably Jewish people, and I know this happens in European cities and other places around the world, noticeably Jewish people are being attacked in New York City. There is video evidence of these attacks. Uh, And I don't know if I'd be asking you for a comment, if not for what happened yesterday when public officials refused to designate what happened in Brooklyn this week as a hate crime. Uh, I thought that was outrageous. Is there anything you could tell us um, in, in terms of the definition of a hate crime and whether wanton attacks on Jews, even if possibly the people attacking them simply want to rob them, uh, need to be in the category of a hate crime? So not every crime is a hate crime, but uh, this, I think, rises to the clear definition it, the fact that if somebody doesn't scream out an anti-Semitic uh, epithet or something isn't, should not be the criteria. If they singled out somebody who looked, because of his garb or because of his appearance, uh, as Jewish, I think that the standard has to be set. There has to be some definition that can be applied. We have the definition, the IRA definition on anti-Semitism, which governments around the world are adopting, including the United States has adopted it. Uh, we're asking universities, we're asking uh, everyone, the state, the uh, city, and federal levels to, to operate on that basis that when a discriminatory act takes place against uh, someone, uh, that it be declared. And now I know there's a hesitancy to declare a hate crime. It involves the FBI, it involves the other thing in the statistics. Malcolm, Malcolm, we're having a lot of trouble hearing you. I don't know if it's a cordless. Uh, We have to, is it better? Now it's a drop better. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, To investigate each of these incidents and, and evaluate them. But the facts speak for themselves, and that is that there is an 80% increase, according to the police, in hate crimes, and that more than two-thirds are directed against Jews. So you cannot, you cannot claim um, that we don't have a problem, and we can't be insensitive to the sufferings of people who, who are victimized by it, and we can't become complacent just because it's happening so often, and then nitpick whether what meets the definition i'm not second guessing i we have to look at the, the details and understand it more but there's a general hesitancy to declare hate crimes and there's a hesitancy on the part of people to report hate crimes right. so both have to be addressed and uh two quick points then we'll move on to the news of the week or the other news of the week uh, first of all, Rosh Hashanah is right around the corner, and I know you've always warned us, rightfully so, about being properly prepared in our places of worship, etc. But I say this because if we are a noticeable community, which of course the Jewish community, especially in New York is, now with the high holidays approaching, we're going to be even more noticeable. I would hope that this would encourage public officials, the NYPD, etc., to pay even more attention to our community. Well, I think the NYPD in this case has to be lauded because they do. They've already held the preparatory meetings. We know that 
their preparations begin even uh, long before this uh, in, in terms of the coverage of synagogues and other institutions, and the, they, they uh, certainly are a model in this regard about the coverage of communities whenever, not only whenever something occurs, but more importantly in trying to anticipate uh, these events. But uh, people should go to the ScanUS website, look at steps that can be taken. More and more synagogues are doing lone shooter training, and the, it's, it's so essential because, if God forbid, something happens, people don't have time to think. It has to be an automatic response about how you evacuate, what uh, steps are taken, making sure that there's a cell phone available in the synagogue. So many things that can be done to prevent, God forbid, a tragedy. Right. And we learned from Poway in Pittsburgh how important it is. And one last thing, and I know it's going to sound cynical, but now, now that the mayor of the city of New York has dropped out of the presidential race, hopefully he'll have more time to concentrate on this. Um, just a general comment. We spoke about this yesterday when Dove Hyken visited our mobile studio on Long Island. Um, it, it, the, the atmosphere in New York, and people around the world may find this really hard to believe, the atmosphere in New York um, with the attacks, the actual physical attacks on police officers that they cannot react to. That's how afraid they are to even enforce the law and arrest somebody in these situations has created a really terrible atmosphere that one can get away with anything. And I think that even though rightfully we point out when our community is targeted, we get that, but that whole atmosphere is just lending itself to to more random attacks in New York City, and I'm hoping that the mayor and the NYPD uh, will, will, will do whatever is necessary to, to, to take from those who support uh, the work of the NYPD, the citizens who really want them to do their job, and they start enforcing it, uh, enforcing the law as, as best as possible. And I think, by the way, as these rallies and demonstrations are taking place uh, to protest and to, and to rally uh, against anti-Semitism and for you know, protection of the Jewish community, I think that has to be one of the elements. I think we have to go out there on the same day at the same time and proclaim our support for New York City Police Department. Uh, absolutely. It's a balance. And the, the fact that our standards get lowered, the fact that police feel inhibited from, from reacting to an assault on them, uh, I know that many people are critical of particular incidents and things, but if the police aren't respected, if we have a breakdown of law and order, everybody yep. gets affected, everybody becomes a victim. Yep. And those who are most vulnerable and most visible become the first victims. And in this case, by and large, it is the Jewish community that has uh, suffered the most from this the rise of, of this uh, mood of hatred and extremism from left, from right, from uh, Muslims, from minorities, from all across the board. And the the need to collective action it means working with law enforcement at the federal and state levels and city levels. It means working with other communities. But the onus should not be on the Jewish community. The onus has to be on the perpetrators. We're the victims. Yep. And there has to be a clear uh, acknowledgement of this. And we're working both on the national and international level, and you will see events coming up that will highlight this. And we have all sorts of efforts. We now have a 24-7 hotline where students and others can, can report incidents if, God forbid, something happens to them. We have many other things that are in the works to supplement the work. But we can't replace the police. You can't replace the FBI. and other law enforcement agencies. I thank you for your comments. Your quotes and comments will go a long way. And... Uh 
Very important way to start today's show. Obviously, a lot of important news this week. There was an election in Israel this week, as we know. We were anticipating it, and finally it came. And unfortunately, and I I don't know if you'd agree with the word unfortunately, but to many, unfortunately, a stalemate. Uh, basically, even the two largest parties with essentially the same number, the, you know, maybe off by one or two. And now it looks like there's no possibility of a what we would call a normal, regular uh, a governmental coalition being formed by either of the major parties. The first question, and I'll start with this because there's so many variables to discuss. Is it possible we're ready for a third election this year? Uh it's interesting that you said there's no normal coalition. I don't know if Israel ever has a normal coalition. <laughs> One that looks normal. Of the unique system. Right? And, you know, people, uh, you know, many, especially those who are not familiar with the electoral system, don't understand that it's a list system. Like Britain, you vote for a party, not the individual, which lends itself to the fact that you need a coalition if no party gets enough to get to 61 seats. Right. You can have a minority government, but it can hardly rule. It can never get anything really passed. Right. And here, and, and of course, subjects you to the manipulation of every minority party right. that or, you have to bring in. Or as you sometimes say, the smaller parties will hold you hostage down the road. That's exactly. Yeah. And you remember, there were 29 parties competing. Right. So only a few of them actually make it in. So a lot of votes get, get wasted yep. in, in the process. Um, and, you know, we, we have a, a pro, an average of two and a half years for government. Now we have elections every four months. <laughs> and it's, it is, um, you know, it's very debilitating. It, it undermines the, the support for democracy and democratic process. People get tired, cynical, young people especially. And I think that it would be very unfortunate if Israel has to go to a third election. Do I think it's impossible? Absolutely not. Uh, this is inconclusive. And if you're... You know, uh, it's being manipulated by Lieberman, who right. says he's against manipulation. Now, Lieberman literally could form a government with either bloc at this point or only with the right-wing bloc. Numbers no, wise. I think if, well, if there are scenarios that have been painted where where the left-wing, left-center-left bloc could right. get to the required numbers, especially if the religious parties... Religious parties, parties right. And now there were reports that they were looking to talk to Lapid. They deny it. They say it isn't true. And they will sit in the opposition if necessary. By the way, the opposition right now will be led by the Arab bloc. Right. Um, and, again, that's an anomaly. Uh, they seem to be targeting Yuli Elstein now as Speaker of the Knesset, saying they want to topple him. There are a number of scenarios that are possible now. One is that BB steps down and and... and with a newly could leader, they would agree to a unity uh, party. And they means Lieberman. That means... Oh, be, no, means blue, blue and white. white. Means blue and white, right. Blue and white. Lieberman also has said right. it, but um, he also set other conditions, meaning the religious parties wouldn't be there, etc. But if it's... Um, but it could be blue and white, or most of blue and white. Right. You could have factions of each, which okay. people don't, don't get either. Let, let, let's start with a couple of things, and I'm going to include everything you just said on the list of, of things to, to, to talk about. Number one... 69.5% eligible voters turned out a drop better than last time. Now, I know, and you're right, that you know certain categories of people are getting really you know cynical about the whole process. But the fact that at least it went up a drop, meaning overall turnout, I guess is a good sign, right? It's a very positive sign because everybody predicted that the turnout would drop uh, significantly. So it goes counterintuitive to, to at least the, what most of the pundits had said. Right. And so the turnout was remarkable and that people are committed to democracy and wanted their 
voices to count on all sides. Now, on the possibilities angle, the the possibility of a a, a true unity government, and I guess what that would mean. You know, growing up, unity government to me meant that, you know, you exchange prime ministerships. You basically rotate as prime minister. So that happening, Gantz and Bibi sitting down and telling the president we are willing to do this. We're willing to come to some type of arrangement to avoid a third election, to bring stability to the country for whatever reason they say. Is there hope that that actually could happen or they can't stand each other to the point that there's no way they would consider unity government together? So it is up to the president who will begin on Sunday the discussions to A to pick who's going to get the first shot and then for them to to try to cobble together um, the government. And so this process could take many, many weeks. In fact, well after uh, the Yom Tovim, Sukkot included, before we have a conclusion. Second, the, the um, uh, options are not unlimited. Could you have a government in which the uh, Arab parties actually take part? Would they take part in the, in the past? They, of course, have not. They kind of the, all the governments and vote against the, the governments of Israel. Right. The um, uh, the role of the religious parties, it's a significant number of, uh, of seats, and, and the question is what happens uh, with their role. Could Lapid and others drop their uh, <coughs> the opposition that they have? Stated over and over again about the, to to in demanding the draft and other law change legal changes. So it, it's very uh, unclear. He asked the, the president asked each of the parties who would you recommend. Now the Arab parties did say that they would recommend uh, or they could recommend blue and white. So if he has enough recommendations, it doesn't mean that it's final commitment. He will then be given the charge to form to try and form a government. Now, in the meantime, all sorts of negotiations will go on. Now, still on the national unity front, assuming for a moment that that possibility exists, can, can Gantz say to the president, we are willing to make a deal as long as Bibi doesn't lead the Likud? Like, is, is there that type of, of jockeying available to him where he literally can say if Likud goes ahead, oust the prime minister as its leader, put somebody else in that position, we're willing to make a deal? I don't think that's what takes place Sunday. But it could take place down the road, and and they more or less have said it in many different ways. Different people have have asserted that, and there's already jockeying within Likud about the leadership. Um, so that but, might be the most the easiest way to do this if you, they really want a unity government. Well, it, Likud has uh, members have pledged that they would support Netanyahu, that they wouldn't abandon him. Hmm. I think that. You know, there's a lot of talk about whether he would make a deal for immunity or, you know, be exonerated. Um, right. Uh, and that would be a controversial move. Wow, to that be, would be something. That would be, be something. Can you imagine? Significant, but then he would withdraw. Uh, so, Can and you then you would have the question of who rules first, who gets the first right. shot at being prime minister, because there's no guarantee that there will be a second shot, right, that right. the actual <laughs> rotation will take place. Right. And it's interesting, yesterday at the memorial for Shimon Peres, where both Gantz and Netanyahu and the president were seated together and clasped hands and put on shows that really detracted from the purpose, but the but reminded people about the Perez-Shamir rotation. Right. But they forget it wasn't that kind of great success. It, it, it functioned, but it was not. And when one was in office, the other was often excluded and uh, cut out. They didn't trust each other. And I think that, that there would be... It's it's a very complicated answer, but maybe the ultimate thing to avoid a third election, which Rivlin said he wants to prevent, 
you know, it's well known he doesn't like Netanyahu and would like to see him out. But, the, um, you know, we've got to put the interests of the country and the people first. And it's time to put aside all these Narishkeiten. And, and when you hear some of the discriminatory comments about sectors, including the religious sector, it, it, to me it's very disturbing. It's time when you have Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran becoming more aggressive. It's a time when a country should be coming together. I get that. I get that. But the, you do the math. We could. Yamina, the religious parties together is 55. Lieberman would put them under the top, uh, over the top. Lieberman on the left, according to the left block right now, would only give them 52 and not close enough without the religious parties, not close enough to form a government. You know, I, I know that you're – I hear the frustration in your voice with, with all the parties involved. But I don't know. Shouldn't there be more frustration with Lieberman? I mean, I know it's not. I know it's not his fault that he's the kingmaker. But I don't know. Can the president twist his arm a bit to, uh, to, to you know, to negotiate a deal that he'd be and his constituents would be would be okay with? Down the road, when people, as the frustration grows, people more and more pressure will be placed upon them. First, everybody has to get their initial. You know, positions out, and they right. can't show that they're weak from the from the gate. Um, so everybody will stake their positions, and then the president will have to make a, a decision. And in fact, you know, for a president who's a figure a figurehead, this is really his most powerful period and uh, function. Right. And and he, he does play a critical role in determining the next government. Yeah. And if, God forbid, Israel's attacked today, is he the one who determines how to react? Is that his responsibility? No. that's The government still functions. It continues. It's actually more powerful uh, when the Knesset's out, that the prime minister, this is a peak power right. uh, to to take action. And the military remains on alert. This would be an interesting way for Netanyahu to remain prime minister. <laughs> keep going to elections, have stalemates, and you just keep being tri- prime minister each time. <laughs> yeah, it's an expensive proposition and, and uh, very complicated. And, 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 you know, that has ramifications in U.S. relationships and how the region sees the stability and Etc. Yeah, I got Thank God it is a stable democracy and we'll get through this. And I got to ask you about worldwide reaction in a second. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web, NahumSiegel.com and the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Support JM and the AM and the NahumSiegel Network before Rosh Hashanah. Uh, join our uh, year-end campaign. If you haven't given yet in 2019, this is the perfect time to do so and support us at FJB. Unity.org, FJBUnity.org, especially if you enjoy our special segments, FJBUnity.org. I actually circled the word enemies on my notes because that's my question. How, we'll get to how the U.S. reacts, but how do, how do the enemies of Israel react to this? Do they, do they see Israel any weaker than in a normal circumstance? For those of us who worry, everybody and listening now, worries about, you know, the northern border, Gaza, etc. Is there more of an inclination to start up with Israel because the government is in the situation it's in now? Um, I think that uh, for the people, often the reaction is the opposite, that they respect it and say, look at what a democracy Israel is, and that leaders are held to account, that you don't impose a solution, that Netanyahu can't just seize power, that the which is what happens in many of the other countries in the region. And that's one, too. Most of them do not know Gantz well. They, some know him from when he was chief of staff. So on the military level, there, there are people who know him. But I would say that the, you know, there's the uncertainty of it. Um, I think that the, the, um, 
uh, countries in the region that think that they can take advantage of this moment are, are wrong, and you see that some of the actions that continue to be taking place, and yeah. perhaps Israel's involved, perhaps not, but certainly the, the countermeasures continue, the military and security apparatus functions as normal. The, um, so they would be making a mistake to, to think that Israel somehow is vulnerable at this uh, at this period. Yep. It does raise in, in other places questions, and you've seen President Trump, others have made uh, comments because they have personal relationships or, you know, feel that the... Uh, you know that they've invested a lot in, in in the Netanyahu government, but the relationship was never based on individuals. It's based on common principles and values, and God willing, will will sustain through all of this. And I, even though some people didn't like it, especially the BB fans, you can't blame the president for basically saying that. He basically said, "Hey, you know, America's with Israel, no matter who's in the leadership." So, you know, that's lot- right, and that he has to say that, but right. that is not to say that he's probably not disappointed and feels that, and because he he does tend to take things and um, from what we hear, um, so it wouldn't be surprising that there would be some uh, that some of the other comments uh, are probably right too. Couple of other combination possibilities, just to toss out there: someone like Yair Lapid or anyone else from Blue and White who wanted to break away and take a few seats to the right for the right deal. Is that possible or doable in an Israeli, uh, you know, political um, uh, negotiation? Yes, he they can. Uh, some Likud members could defect also and give blue and white the, the requisite number. Uh, I don't think Lapid would, would break to the right. If anything, I think he would more likely, uh, it's more likely that Gantz would break. Um, right. And the tension between them has been very clear all along. And, uh, you know, many of them were expecting a real defeat, and they were going to blame each other, and recriminations have been heard. But we know that there's been tension between them and within the party, which was an amalgamation, as you remember. And the we'll have to see whether they can sustain it now that they have the responsibility, uh, sustain the unity, or could there be a split, but there would be Gantz's side that would go right. Uh, also, I mean, someone sent me the following um, uh, uh, analysis or, or latest news yesterday that all political parties, as you just said, are being held to their pre-election commitments of who they won't sit with, meaning, as you said, you know, the first thing, act everybody does is get out there and say, you know, we're committed to the same platform or the same arrangement that we had, you know, run on because nobody's willing to, to show at this point, right after the election, that they're ready to bend, except the Haredim, who now are going to ask Rav Kanievsky if they're allowed to sit with Lapid. And I wonder now if the, if the likelihood of the religious parties giving the left, you know, th- this um, political victory is, is you know, even more possible because we keep thinking, and you know how it is, those of us, <laughs> those of us who really are familiar with the religious community always think there's no way they're going to leave that political right. But now they're they're already asking questions if they could do so. Is this is it possible if they could be the ones to put the left over the top? Well, they had they worked with labor governments, as you know, for for many years. But um, but I don't believe the reports are true. Uh, at least so far, they're denying that uh, that they asked this permission or are considering a unity government with Lapid. Hmm, interesting. And Shas did very well, right? Nine seats. Very that's, well. that's considered a big victory for them. And um, and w- w- it, it, can we say, as we analyze this election, and we see that BB, I mean, I, I assume we can conclude he made a calculated error in going to another election, right? I think we could say that now 
uh, with 2020 hindsight, right? That that's right. that's conclusive at this point. And we also know that he made all the right <laughs> capital R all the right negotiating deals over the last couple of months, and still you know, suffered in terribly low numbers compared to what people anticipated based on past performance that he would get. Can we now say that, generally speaking, the Israeli electorate is not as right as we as we on the right think it is and maybe not as left as some on the left think it is that we are that I know the religious parties obviously swing things, you know, heavily in a different direction. But I, I think the country is more center than we ever thought. Would that be the right conclusion after this? I think it always is uh, basically centrist. Um, they're, they're one of the mysteries yet is why. Um, why is that? Why? Why? Well, I don't know yet. I mean, they expressed that there was disappointment with all the parties, uh, uh, but especially after Netanyahu, you know, talked about and put forward the the plans of, on the Jordan Valley, which is, by the way, a consensus view, right. and pledging to apply sovereignty to to the um, communities there. Uh, I don't know, and the the poor showing. Uh, of this Yamina party, of the right-wing party, yeah. is is really uh, a mystery that has yet to be explained by any of the pundits that, that I have seen uh, analyzing it. Um, but I think one of the things is that Netanyahu was successful in conveying the message, if you're going to vote right, vote for Likud, because, you know, we sh- we have to be the party that gets chosen to to form the government, that if you vote for all these splinter parties, number one, the chance that you get across 3.25% and in is limited, and therefore your votes will be completely wasted, or that, that the splinter parties, you're not going to, we will not be in a position to be the, the first party, even if in a, they would join together in a coalition, so uh, the other party will get the nod to form the government first. And by the way, if in fact, as you said at the very beginning of this uh, part of our segment, if in fact uh, the Arab, if in fact there would be uh, this national unity government, then well, tell me if I'm right. If there would be a national unity government, then the Arab list led by Ayman uh, 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 Daya, I think his name is Oda, Oda rather, um, uh, they they would be the leaders of the opposition. And that would mean that that uh, intelligence conversations, intelligence briefings, and things like that traditionally are discussed with the head of the opposition. Is that correct? That is generally correct. And that would be something to consider. I don't know if it would prevent, you know, those who form this government eventually from from going the way they want in their best interests. But if, if the Arab list is the leader of the opposition in the Knesset. Well, they are always the leader of the opposition, so this is just formalizing the title. But it is a complicated question, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ayman refused to come to my office. We were supposed to have a meeting uh, at one point, and he refused to come up because the Jewish agency has offices there, and he would not walk in because of that. The The leader of the Arab joint list. Right. So if, if that's his view, that he won't even recognize the Jewish agency, so how can he sit in a government and, and pledge loyalty to it? And and when many of the members there don't recognize it, don't want to support uh, the government. I don't know how that, I mean, that's the concern that is being raised and being stated over and over again. Um, so I think that those are details that will emerge. And I, I don't see the scenario yet where they would be the minority, uh, the opposition. And then if so, how do you, 
uh, work work it out. I mean, they sit in the Knesset. They sit on different committees as well. Uh, but the security questions would be, um, I'm sure, will be raised. Did you see Rex Tillerson's uh, comments about BB? Yes, it's outrageous, and um, it, it confirms a lot of the concerns that people have had about Tillerson all along. Let's see what the details of it are, but I think it's it's uh, you know this atmosphere of kiss and tell of everybody having to go out and everybody you know accusing somebody of something. It's really so destructive of trust of relationships, uh, the image of America, the image of of these individual leaders. You know, he came out of the oil industry. I don't know what his attitudes were. Um, not making an accusation against him because I just don't know enough to do that. But the the comments certainly are untoward and coming at this time. Uh, and also, if we're going to uh, if we're going to make a rule that public officials should not influence <coughs> influence elections taking place in other countries, then if I'm a congresswoman from Minnesota, I probably should keep my feelings on election eve about Bibi Netanyahu to myself. Agreed or not a big deal. Well, I think it probably helps Netanyahu when, <laughs> when she does it. Um, but, yeah, people, you know, countries should be free to do their elections. People shouldn't be influenced from outside sources. Right. As you know, for many, 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 many years, I oppose people here giving money to the parties in Israel, right. parties in Israel getting involved in elections here. It's unhealthy, and you see the price we pay ultimately for that. The the people of Israel should be free to express themselves and and participate in democratic process, uh, un, uh, uh, uninhibited by outside influences or parties who don't have to live day to day with the results. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Netanyahu cancels his visit to New York. Will not be speaking at the UN. I think based on what you told us last week, we should have anticipated this once we saw the results of the election, right? Right, and and. Uh, but it looks like uh, Rouhani will not come, but Zarif will come. And they got their visas yesterday. Does he meet with the president or not? No. Not a chance. Not a chance, I don't think. Um, Iran is accused of attacking Saudi Arabia earlier in this week. What can you tell us about that attack? Uh, well, we'll need another hour to <laughs> talk about it because it, it's, it's really a very serious uh, uh, development. So it raised so many questions from why didn't Saudi Arabia have the defense mechanisms? Where was their – they have six Patriot um, batteries. Why were they not deployed to, to properly? Uh, and the answer is in part that the, that the Iranians went around. They didn't attack directly. They didn't come across the Persian Gulf where both the U.S. and the Saudis have resources. And the Patriot missile has only a certain area that it can cover. So when it goes in beyond that, number two, they flew very low, about 300 feet about above the ground. They had um, uh, many strikes, and each of the strikes actually hit the, hit the targets that, um, that were uh, intended, which is also a remarkable uh, feat from them. Uh, but, you know, the United States detected the, the actions, the preparations that were going on, uh, didn't give them enough notice, and they certainly didn't have the time to to uh, prepare. But the um, the questions that it's raised about um, Saudi Arabia defense and and the uh, I think if one of the goals was to disrupt the oil supply, you see that that it did not have the desired effect, and mostly because of American production making up for it. Uh, we didn't have to go into our strategic reserve. Now more than half of the production is back online. By the way, U.S. news organizations threw everybody into a panic that that would happen. 
That's right. And, and, and you know, in West Permian Basin, shale fields will, will expand by about a million barrels a day soon. The... Um, and the there was no there was an abject there's probably a big glut but part of it is because there's been voluntary cuts in production by Saudi Arabia and others and their capacity they now say will be 11 million barrels a day by the end of September where it was producing around 9.6 million barrels a day all seems technical no it's very important because this is um, so that one goal w- was not uh, achieved. What they were thinking about what the response would be, I think that in part Khamenei wants to draw a response. He wants an escalation in violence because it unites the people at home. And even if he has to pay a price, he knows that there's not going to be an all-out war. They saw an American drone was taken down, and still there was well, there were increased um, sanctions, but there was no on-the-ground uh, action. Um, and we have to see yet what the United States decision will be. They're still studying it, when assessing will, it. When will we know? When you publicly call something an act of war, people expect some type of reaction. That's right. And when you're locked and loaded, people uh, and and you have to think about how do the the neighbors feel about it? How right. do the others perceive it? And how do the people inside Iran, with whom we are in touch, how do they uh, do they see this as? Uh, again, the same pattern that we've seen in the past where America, you know, speaks uh, with bravado, but there isn't the kind of concomitant action against them. The, the, does it say that the oil installations around the world will become more vulnerable? Do you see that they will, you know, if they're striking with this and can get away with it, what happens to others? You know, they've been interfering with shipping for months and the making transit there in the Persian Gulf more dangerous, the Straits of Hormuz, they've seized ships. Um, and everybody knows that they, you know, and the feeling is that U.S. doesn't want to get into a prolonged war, which I understand. Um, but look at the, how they flew around the northern Persian uh, Gulf to avoid detection and through Iraqi uh, space. You have all of their uh, um, agents, the militia groups, the Hezbollah, the Hamas, others uh, who are uh, operating. And the, so the question is, do, do they want a hot war? Will they ask, heat up things in Gaza as a distraction? Will they do other things? They also, they want to tie up uh, Egypt. They want to break the coalition with Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt. They, um, there is a strategic buildup along the bond that we see continuing and, and uh, from Lebanon and Iraq as well. So, and the strikes continue, by the way, so people should not lose the sight of it. It's an act of war. Secretary Pompeo said it. Um, we'll have increased sanctions. The sanctions do work. They're very effective. I don't think anybody wants to see a, a bloody war confrontation, but there has to be some standard that um, uh, is upheld, that people have confidence in the word uh, of the United States, that the um, consequences of this don't lead to let's say, along the Golan Heights, where we see the buildup. We see Iranian militias. We see the, Sh- uh, the Shiite militias there. And Hezbollah operatives are, are Ali Musa uh, Dr. Who's, who's running it there. The, um, um, the, so you have uh, three sets of, of Shiite militias from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan participating in it. And I say because it's all interrelated. And it's the point I've tried to make for a long time on shows to follow all these things because these are all Iranian vehicles and they're putting themselves in a position and will activate whatever they think serves their purposes. Provoking a crisis now serves their internal purposes because the people are more and more upset, more uh, unhappy, and they know that this 
the creating the sense of urgency right. could help him, but it's only tempor- temporarily. And the the question of what happens inside Saudi Arabia, what's the reaction to the vulnerability, et cetera? Does it unite the people? Does it create greater uh, friction? Does and what happens in, uh, in in Yemen? I mean, they're fighting the Houthis. The Houthis are a ragtag group backed by Iran, but then the weapons are all Iranian. But it's not. Uh, after all this time, uh, comprehensible that there hasn't been they've been able to really defeat them and and uh, wreck them up. So we'll have to see what Rani has to say today. We have to see what uh, the Saudis are stepping up their hits in Yemen again, and the then um, uh, you know Zarif saying that Saudi Arabia will fight to the last American soldier is trying to, to to stimulate the response here and manipulate it. So we, we have people have to be very alert not to fall into traps and make simple conclusions as a complex situation, but I think very dangerous. Uh, I th- You told us a lot of very important things today. I think the most important might be that, in your opinion, please God, this is 100% true, uh, the security and safety of the state of Israel is no different today, even though the government is now what we look at as complete turmoil um, as this whole negotiating process is now beginning. Uh, but thank God, uh, you don't think it affects the security and the safety of the people of Israel. I don't think that this. I think, in fact, alert. Uh, they tend to get heightened. I, and I also hope that this will not affect the U.S.-Israel relationship, which is based on so many solid uh, criteria. Uh, there may even be some who will say if Netanyahu is out, it will improve the relationship, because you know there were sections in Congress and elsewhere right. um, didn't like him. And, uh, you know, it's been a long time, and people talk of the BB fatigue, et cetera. Those are all factors. But you also have to look at the stability, the economic development, the incredible achievements uh, that came about under his uh, under his leadership. Uh, if you look at what the ratings are, the Fitch ratings and others are putting Israel at really uh, remarkable uh, standards and uh, approvals, and their economic growth remains I think three and a half percent or so, and you know there's a poll that showed that seventy-one and a half percent of Israeli Arabs say that they're satisfied with life in Israel, and and wow. two-thirds say that they treat it equally, and and sixty-five percent had a positive view of the state. So while there are other statistics that are worrisome, when you ask them what is it that issues more than about two-thirds said that it was housing, unemployment, welfare, and about thirteen percent said the Palestinian issue. So, you know, the American media tends to distort and misrepresent. They will never tell uh, the positive stories that the, uh, you know, the Palestinians oppose a two-state solution now by a majority, about 56 percent. Uh, there are other statistics that are, are difficult. Um, but one that really struck me is that 60 percent of the people in West Bank said they're not able to criticize the PA. <laughs> they don't feel safe. Where's the democracy then? So why exactly. isn't there some sort of a balance in the coverage that um, that two times the number of of uh, Palestinians coming uh, coming to work in Israel um, than was true just two years ago, and that each year that number uh, goes up significantly, and the the um, the fact that the number in high tech has shot up amazingly, and especially uh, Arab women in high tech in Israel. 
But those stories don't get told, and, and there's no uh, credit, and that undermines, I think, the credibility of the media here and around the world, because they all have agendas, and Netanyahu was certainly not on theirs. Malcolm's New Year's message next Friday, and plenty more. Uh, have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. Be well. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.